Father, we praise you this morning for your inexpressible gift. Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest, we thank you for him. We thank you for his first coming. We look forward to his second coming. And even now, Father, in this moment, in this place, with these people, as your word is proclaimed, we behold him. Haste, haste to bring him Lot. Let's hurry up and worship him today. Help us by the power of your spirit to understand your word and to go out and be doers of your word, not hearers only. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So you ask yourself as a preacher, is it a better gift to go short or to go long on Christmas Eve? Uh, Yeah, thank you. Yeah, don't answer that question because we'll see how it goes. Uh, but one way or the other, we have plenty to go over today in these three verses. What a three verses this is. It's incredible to me that we... Oh man, I don't know what's going on up here. There we go. Um, came to this passage this day. Um, I mean... I'm not shocked anymore when God providentially works these things out, but I am very happy. It's a very happy thing to... And and, and it's funny because it doesn't really tie itself into Advent until we get to the end, but boy, does it. I would say, boy, howdy, does it. So, um, y'all can... Y'all should say, boy, howdy, more than you do, by the way. As should I. So. So, we'll start here in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. For it was fitting indeed. So we actually saw this phrase, for it was fitting, back in Hebrews 2.10, when we saw, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect. Through suffering. And there the writer was saying it was fitting, it was right and proper to use suffering to perfect or complete the work of Jesus so that he could associate with us, his brothers. And that he, as the capital S Son, could have such perfect association with us, his brothers, those who would become the little s sons of God. And so then here in chapter 7, after comparing Jesus to Melchizedek, in order to show the eternality of Jesus' priesthood, the author is now going to show the superiority of Jesus over earthly, mere human high priests. Again, it is fitting, he says, it is right, it is appropriate, it makes perfect sense that the high priest that God appointed to make atonement for his people, the high priest that we have in Jesus, it made sense, it's fitting indeed, that that high priest be holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted in the heavens. Now, that's quite the resume. We can't put that on our resume, okay? But it's on Jesus's, and it's fitting that Jesus's resume providentially lines right up with the requirements of God. Line after line. The author says Jesus is holy, which means undefiled by sin, 
free from wickedness, religiously observing every moral obligation, pure and pious. Jesus is innocent, without guile or fraud. He's harmless. He's free from guilt. He's unstained, not defiled, unsoiled, free from that by which the nature of the thing is deformed and debased or its force and vigor impaired. He is separated from sinners. And this is a lot like holy, as holiness is otherness, but this also speaks of distance, as in Jesus is far from sinners. He's not in proximity with sinners. They're not His peers. That's what that means. And you're thinking, well, He was called the friend of sinners, and He did hang out with sinners. He did when He was on the earth. But even then, when He was with them, He was separate from them. He wasn't one of them. That's the thought here. He's also exalted above the heavens. It was indeed fitting that our high priest, that Jesus, be exalted above the heavens, which is pretty self-explanatory, right? Jesus is the highest of the high. The top of the mountain, the one exalted, the one esteemed and lifted above any and all, even above the heavens. In the heavens... It is the name of Jesus that inspires the greatest awe and praise. It is indeed fitting that that's our high priest. And it's fitting, it's right, it's appropriate that he is all of these things. The author of Hebrews is telling us to just look at him. Just think about him. Meditate on him in the manifold ways that he's not just an ideal high priest, but He's the unique one who far exceeds the work and or merits of any mere human high priest who came before or who would come after Him. And again, don't miss the wonder in the fact that this Jesus, He is our high priest. He is the one who mediates between man and God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And He's our high priest. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. It fits us. Why? Because our need is so great. John Newton said near his death that he had learned two things in his life, that he was a great sinner and that Jesus is a great Savior. And that's the tone that I'm getting from the author of Hebrews here. It's fitting, indeed, that the only high priest who could help us in our miserable state is the Christ. The one who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. It is indeed fitting. Now verse 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Oh, people. Dramatic pause for emphasis here. Read that. Just look at it. Think about it. Like, do that now. Look up on the screen or on your device. Read this verse and think about what it's saying.
So the author continues his contrasting Jesus with earthly, finite high priests. The Levitical priests, human as they were, were all sinners. And that sin in their lives, in their life individually, in their lives collectively, manifested itself in and through them like it does us on a daily basis. So, even the high priests who held the highest office in the land, in the land of Israel, in the Levitical priesthood, in the civic and religious duties with and for the people of Israel, even they had to offer sacrifices for their sins day by day by day by day ad nauseum. And in addition to having to offer sacrifices for their own sins, they were responsible to offer similar sacrifices for those of their Israelite brothers. The whole lot of them needed daily reminder of their daily sins. And all of them needed animals offered, shedding that blood to remind them of the awful cost of those sins, their sins. Death had to occur because they sinned. Blood had to be shed because they sinned. Atonement had to be made because they sinned. For priest and non-priest, every day, all the time. But Jesus? Ah, oh, no. He has no need, like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people. And I just stop right there for a minute. Let's just focus on the truth that any sacrifice that Jesus made was not for himself at all. Not for any sins he committed. Because Jesus never sinned. Being tempted in every way in which we are, the author of Hebrews pointed out in earlier passages, yet without sin. Again, like he said in verse 26, holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. That's our high priest. He had no sin of his own to offer sacrifices for. And that's going to be really good news later when we see that we get his perfect righteousness, his perfect keeping of the law as a free gift of God's grace as well as having our sins taken away. But that's a different message for a different day. Here we see that Jesus didn't have to make a sacrifice for his own sins. But that's not all that this verse says. It also says that he doesn't have to make sacrifices for sins daily. Why? Why not daily? Since he did this once for all. When he offered up himself. Now let me tell you what. I looked up what the biggest nuclear warhead rating is. It's 25 megaton right now. This here is a 25 megaton nuclear warhead in our theology. I'm going to reread this verse. And I'm going to reemphasize this truth. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up 
himself. Now on my device here, I put that last part in bold, italicized, underlined font. That's all I could do. The simple truth in this thought is that when Jesus was hung on the cross and shed His blood to pay the penalty for our sins, He did it once. And that once offering, listen to me, listen to the Bible, listen to what the Spirit says to the church this morning, that one offering was enough to take care of all of the sins for all of His people. Once for all. And don't get lost in the weeds of what it says that's all. It means once for all. Once for all of your sins. All the sins of all of His people. Jesus gave Himself once and that was enough for all of your sins, Christian. And the implications of that are eternally far-reaching for our past, our present, and our future. Listen to me, Christian, follower of Jesus, you who have been born again, Jesus' death on the cross, that one offering, listen to me, took care of all of your sins. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. You bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul, listen to me. All of your sins are forgiven. You are completely forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, no in. These three words are explained here in our verse in Hebrews. Since He paid the penalty for our sins once for all, when He offered up Himself, our now is characterized by no condemnation since we are in Christ Jesus by His doing through that offering once for all. Does that mean that if I sin now, it's not a big deal? Doesn't matter? Sin is awful. Sin is cosmic treason against the holy God and is an affront to the sacrifice Jesus made. And it has been perfectly dealt with and forgiven. Listen to me. The best statements on this are found in Romans 6. You can look into that for yourself. We don't have time for that this morning. So no, it's not okay to sin after we've been born again. And, well, we do on a daily basis. And there's no need to offer sacrifices daily for those sins because Jesus dealt with all of those sins once and for all when He offered up Himself. That offering forever removes the guilt of any and all sins we commit and thus motivates us to wonder at the love and the grace shown to us. And I'm telling you this morning, that is what will motivate you to put your sin to death. The wonder of His love. Far as the curse is found. 
fear of condemnation cannot and will not be enough to keep you from sinning. Love for the one who offered up himself to pay the penalty for those sins will. And seeing, and to quote John Piper, seeing and savoring this truth in this verse is a great start to cultivating that sin-killing love for our great high priest who paid the penalty for our sins once for all. (coughs) He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And we could close the book today and be excitedly done. But I did not give you that gift. I'm giving you a different gift today. Because there's even more in this last verse. Look at me, man. The ghost of Christmas present would say, look at verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You're like, oh, that's a pretty good verse. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not a pretty good verse. Where do you even start here? Of course, the verse is not in isolation. So I want to try to reset context, not just of this passage, but of the book in general. So the author of Hebrews has been establishing the superiority of Jesus to any and all who came before Him, any and all that might come after Him. Superior to angels. Superior to Moses, Joshua, David. The Levitical priesthood and such. That's where we've been so far. And the most recent passages have been focusing on Jesus as the superior, eternal, perfect high priest. The one who mediates between man and God. And we also saw in chapter 6 that God, who cannot lie, affirmed His promise to Abraham with an oath so that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that He sets before us. That was in 6.18. So with that in mind, we see verse 28. Look at that again. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So the contrast continues, right? The high priests under the law and Jesus as the perfect high priest. And we see that the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. That's pretty straightforward, right? Not hard to understand. Human beings, natural sinful human beings, appointed to this high priest office are still weak and fallen. And that's the only raw material that the law has to work with. There are no non-sinning high priests. The law can only appoint men in their weakness as high priests. Every Levitical high priest was a sinful fallen man. That's what happens under the law. But, contrastive conjunction, my favorite one actually, So what is about to be said is opposite of what was just said. This, not that. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, 
appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So we've got two juxtapositions here. The law and the oath, that's the first one. And then weak men and the perfect son. The law is, of course, the law given by God to Moses and the exodusing Israelites. And we've seen the fact, the author of Hebrews said earlier, that it was impossible for the law to make anything or anyone perfect. Now, the contrast to the law here is the oath. Now, we saw in chapter 6 that God made that oath in chapter 6 to Abraham to make sure our faith is secure in God's ability to do what He said He would do. God who cannot lie affirmed it with an oath so that we might hold fast our confidence. But the text here today, the oath in this text came after the law. So the oath to Abraham is not what's being referenced here. Why? Because Abraham came before the law. So that oath made to Abraham didn't come after the law, so that's not the oath that he's talking about. So what oath is he talking about? A.W. Pink says this. Anytime you quote A.W. Pink, you've got some credibility, by the way. I'm cool because I quoted A.W. Pink today. Listen, this is awesome. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the son who is perfected forevermore. And when you use King James language, you get even more credibility. Here we go. This is what he says. The apostle turns again in a most emphatic and conclusive manner unto the keynote which he had struck at the beginning of the epistle. The law of Moses constitutes priests that were changing continually, but the capital W word which came with the oath after the law, consecrated forevermore as high priest, him who is the son. So he says, compare the same emphasis on son in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, end of quote. So let's go back there. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Jesus is the Word. So in our passage today, Jesus is the oath that came later. The Word of God, the oath, appoints who? Appoints the Son. Not far enough back. That's not far enough. There we go. Appoints a Son. The oath appoints a Son to be high priest who has been made perfect forever. So the question is, which is better? The law and weak men or the oath and a perfect son? Which would you rather have as your high priest? The author is like, this is easy. I'm gonna, you want law-appointed weak men or do you want the oath of God-appointed perfect son of God? to be your high priest. Take your pick. Choose this day whom you'll serve. You want to serve the gods of those whose land we just took? Those ones that we destroyed? You want those gods? As for me and my house, I'll take the perfect forever Son of God as my high priest 
Thank you very much. Affirm to us through an oath, through God's perfect, infallible Word. The oath that God made appoints a son, God's son, to be our perfect, eternal high priest. And God in His grace, and because of the great love with which He has loved us from eternity past, chose to appoint His Son, Jesus, our Savior, Emmanuel, as our eternal high priest. And don't miss the wording here. The oath, God in His oath to bless us, appointed, what does it say? A very good guy. A friend of his that he knows can handle the job. God in his oath to bless us appointed a son. The son. His son. After all these qualifications and accomplishments, all these contrasts to weak, imperfect men, we have what may be the most impressive and precious description of this great high priest. He's God's son. God appointed his son to be our high priest. He's the only begotten son of God. The monogenes in the Greek. In John 3.16. The unique, only one of His kind, God in the flesh, Son of God, Son of Man. Our high priest is the very Son of the Most High God. Our high priest is God the Son. And I think this is definitely something that we do not understand. Therefore, we do not appreciate it as we should. God so ordered the universe that His plan was for His very own Son to be the perfect high priest for His people. I would guess it's Christmas season. There may be that one gift that you're especially excited to give somebody because you're like, they're going to love this. This, yes. We joke and say, who's going to win Christmas this year? Who's going to give that gift? Everybody's like, that's it, you know. I've already won Christmas at my family's house, by the way, but that's a whole different subject. God gave us His best. God won Christmas. When He gave us His Son. He gave us His best. He gave us Himself. Literally. His very own life. And I think we would do well to dwell on this this Advent season and every season. Meditate on it and ask God to help us come to a greater appreciation of the fact that God gave us His Son to be our High Priest. And on this Christmas Eve, it's right to look at this and realize that this is Advent, right? This is what we celebrate, right? 
God, in order to keep the oath that He made to Abraham, came down in the flesh for His people, was raised to indestructible life, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father where He ever lives to make intercession for His people as their eternal, perfect high priest. Who sacrificed Himself. And we, as the beneficiaries of all of this, receive adoption into the family of God because of the perfect ongoing work of our brother who is the very Son of God. And this is all true because Jesus is the Son of God and is our great high priest. And this thought and theme of the Son being the promised one goes all the way through Scriptures, doesn't it? Adam and Eve thought their son may have been the promised one. God had promised that Eve's seed would crush the head of the serpent. One son dies, another son comes, and they're like, maybe this is the one. Abraham was promised a son in his old age. Maybe this is the one. Then God says, you know what? Sacrifice him to me. Of course, God intervened and provided a sacrifice for Himself so Abraham would not have to give his own son. Moses was a son who was miraculously delivered and then who later helped in delivering the people of God. David, the son of Jesse, became king with an oath from God. And then David's son Solomon built the temple of God and expanded the kingdom of Israel to its greatest point historically that it's ever been. Is he the one? And the theme of the whole Old Testament is how long? How long until this perfect son comes? And for 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, there's no word from God. A famine of hearing the word of God, which God said would happen. And the Israelites pined and asked, How long? Oh, come. Oh, come, Emmanuel. Be with us. Deliver us. Where is our Messiah? Where is the Son of God? Who will deliver us? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The prophet Isaiah said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Means God with us. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And this son, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, the son's government, and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal, the passion, the love of God says, I will give them my son to be their great high priest. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
Sinclair Ferguson said it Wednesday in our study. Why? Because the Father loved us, the Son died for us. Not the other way around. He doesn't love us because the Son died for us. Since He loved us, He sent the Son to die for us and to be our great high priest. Listen to me, Christian. The Father loved you so much that He sent His Son to die for you, to pay the penalty for your sins, to be your great high priest. In His zeal, He sent His Son to be your Savior and your high priest. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, Appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Your great high priest, church, Christian, is perfect forever because he is the very son of God. What's for lunch? So we turn our attention to application. Three S's. How do we apply this? What do we do with this, this Advent season, this Christmas Eve, this day, the rest of this year, the rest of our lives? Three S's that come from our description of Jesus. Separate sins and son. Yeah, that had to be there. First application point is separate. We saw in our passage today that Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. So what's the application? So should you be. We too, as the brothers of Christ, as those forgiven and given the perfect righteousness of Christ as a gift, are called to be holy and separate. There are plenty, plenty of scriptures that bear that out. I'm going to read two of them. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You know, we see that, we talk about that in marriage a lot, and that's not wrong, but that's not the context. It's you, individually. Us, corporately. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, here's your application. Go out from their midst and be separate from them says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You say, what's that mean? We got to like buy a tract of land and build a compound and not go out in the world? That's exactly what it doesn't mean. 
The point of the Reformation was to be in the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, Jesus says, but to preserve them from the evil one as they go out there and live their lives as separate holy people in the midst of an unclean generation in which they will shine as lights in a darkened world. No, it's not run from the world. It's run to the world and be separate from them in the midst of them. Be separate. Be different. We have a living hope. We've been given the righteousness of Christ as a gift. Some of you all are going to open gifts today, tomorrow, through this week, and you'll you'll never touch them again. We've been given the righteousness of Christ. The holiness of Christ as a gift of a loving, perfect Father who said, I demand that you come out, be separate, be distinct, be different. There's a call to holiness, which is direly lacking in today's church. In my life, it's direly lacking. Be separate. Come out of her midst. Be separate. And there's blessings to that, right? Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I'll be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. There are blessings of holiness. Practical, everyday holiness. We've been given the gift of holiness. God sees no stain on us. We'll get to sins in a minute. Those have been taken out of the way. Apply that holiness. That's how you glorify God and honor the perfect Son who's given you His righteousness as a gift. Jesus said it this way, You therefore must be perfect or holy as your heavenly Father is perfect or holy. You must be. He said, well, I can't do that right. So we go to Him and say, Help me today to be holy as you are holy. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is you can't do this, but it has been done for you. Trust in that. Build your life upon that rock, not upon the sand of your own deeds. You must be holy. You must be perfect. Can't do that. Good. Because I can, God says. And I did. And I appointed a high priest who gave you his holiness and I gave you my Holy Spirit so that you can live out that holiness in everyday life. Separate. That's application point number one. Application point number two. Sins. Our sins have been taken away from us once and for all by the perfect atoning work of Jesus Christ, our perfect high priest. What's the application of that? Oh boy. Y'all can't see this. There's something written right there. There's pencil beside it. But they monogram these things for free. Whatever that means. When you order them, if you want. You know what mine says? Anybody want to guess what that says? Can anybody see that? If you can see that, wow. Right here, it says no condemnation. 
I picked that as my monogram. Why? Because I need reminded of that every day. Our sins have been taken away from us once and for all by the perfect atoning work of Jesus Christ, our eternally perfect high priest. You living with shame today? Worry? If people knew? Fear? Because God does know? Are you living with that? You don't have to. Think of the worst thing you've ever done. And where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. If you are in Christ, there is therefore now. 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 And that echoes into eternity. No condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh as He took upon Himself the wrath for those sins that we committed so that there therefore now remains no condemnation, no harsh judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus said it's finished and the Father said amen. Paid in full. Deed in hand. Our sins have been taken away from us. And for all. Once and for all. By the perfect atoning work of Jesus Christ, our perfect eternal high priest. I love this passage of scripture. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He fashioned Adam out of the dust of the earth forever and perfect until I perfect them. And He did perfect us. So He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He deals with us according to the atoning sacrifice that Christ made for us. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you 
who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. That's the heritage of the children of God. All your sins were nailed to the cross. And as far as the east is from the west, God says, they're not there anymore. They're not there anymore. Oh, they're ever before me. And they're not there anymore. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him and then He placed us in Him. Yeah. Separate sins. And finally, son. What's the application point for son? Oh, listen. R.C. Sproul says this, the incarnation is the linchpin of the Christian faith. It is a stunning and unique event in history where the eternal Son of God took on human flesh a miraculous act at the heart of God's redemptive work. I love what David shared this morning. What was it the high priest asked Jesus? Tell us if you are the Son of God. Really what he was saying is, I want you to say that so that I can condemn you for it. Because that's ridiculous. Nobody would call themselves the Son of God. Because that's equating themselves with God. And you're just a man. So tell us if you're the Son of God. So that we can condemn you to death. Jesus said, I tell you what. You're going to see the Son of Man just like everybody else coming on clouds with great glory. Paraphrase, and yeah, that's me. I am the Son of God. John says this at the end of his Gospel. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So, so what? What if I believe that? And that believing, that by believing, you may have life in His name. Do you know this morning? Not in a cliche, hey, I know this kind of way. Do you know that your great high priest is the eternal perfect Son of God? who was made manifest 2,000 years ago by coming in the form of a baby and living a perfect human life and then giving himself as a sacrifice for your sins on the cross. Died, buried, resurrected, ascended, wherever lives to make intercession for you. Do you know that that's your high priest, the Son of God? Do you wonder at Advent season that this really happened? I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs. They say not to do that in public speaking, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is John Piper. 
Since we just out the other day. He says, I feel so strongly that among those of us who have grown up in church and who can recite the great doctrines of our faith in our sleep, and yet who can yawn through the Apostles' Creed, that among us something must be done to help us once more feel the awe, the fear, the astonishment, the wonder of the Son of God, begotten by the Father from all eternity, reflecting all the glory of God, being the very image of His person through whom all things were created, upholding the universe by the word of His power. You can read every fairy tale that was ever written, every mystery thriller, every ghost story, and you will never find anything so shocking, so strange, so weird and spellbinding as the story of the incarnation of the Son of God. How dead we are! How callous and unfeeling to your glory and your story, O God. How often have I had to repent and say, God, I am sorry that the stories men have made up stir my emotions, my awe and wonder and admiration and joy more than your own true story. Perhaps the galactic movie thrillers of our day can do at least this good for us. They can humble us and bring us to repentance by showing us that we really are capable of some of the wonder and awe and amazement that we so seldom feel when we contemplate the eternal God and the cosmic glory of Christ and a real living contact between them and us in Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus said, For this purpose I have come into the world, He said something as crazy and weird and strange and eerie as any statement in science fiction that you've ever read. Piper goes on to say, Oh, how I pray for a breaking forth of the Spirit of God upon me and upon you for the Holy Spirit to break into my experience in a frightening way to wake me up to the unimaginable reality of God. And he closes by saying this. I'm not closing, so don't shut your thumbnail right there. One of these days, lightning is going to fill the sky from the rising of the sun to its setting. And there is going to appear in the clouds the Son of Man with His mighty angels in flaming fire. And we will see Him clearly. And whether from terror or sheer excitement, we will tremble. And we will wonder how we ever lived so long with such a domesticated, harmless Christ. These things are written. The whole Bible is written that we might believe. That we might be stunned and awakened to the wonder that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came into the world. End of quote. The author of Hebrews today says, it was indeed fitting that the Son of God would be our eternal, perfect high priest. Yeah, that's cool. I'm not trying to elicit emotion from you. But let me tell you what I am trying to do. I'm trying to evoke wonder that the Father would give the Son for us and to us. And that we would take this Advent season, look at that, and be filled with awe and wonder. Not just that He came, He did. He's coming again. Who's coming? Jesus Christ. The Son of the living God. Our eternally perfect high priest is coming again. And that we would wonder at that. 
and that we would wonder at the fact that we're going to spend eternity with Him, imaging Him forth, worshiping Him for all eternity to the glory of God the Father? Oh, He's coming again. Not as a baby. You're like, oh, everybody says that every Christmas. He's not coming again. It's true though. He's coming as the King of Kings. He's coming. You're like, as the Lord of Lords. Yes! He's coming as the Son of God and the Son of Man. The only begotten will come for His brothers. And then the only begotten will be the firstborn among many brethren. That's a wonder. And we need to contemplate that this Advent season. I'm just going to zip through these last verses just to paint the picture of what we have to anticipate and wonder at. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, this son was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion, the Son's dominion, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's who's coming. Revelation 19, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called, the faith, is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Don't ask me, I don't know. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word, the oath of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who's coming. Revelation 22.7 And behold, I am coming soon, he says. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Revelation 22, 12 to 13. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Revelation twenty two seventeen. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. In the last verses of the Bible, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. To which we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, our eternally perfect high priest, be with all until we see him face to face when he comes again on the clouds in great glory. Until then, wonder at Him now. Be separate from the world. Know that your sins are forgiven. And look to the Son for your perfect righteousness. Look to the Son, the one who came, who is coming again. And know that He is your eternally perfect high priest before God. Let's pray. Father, our prayer this morning is... Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, what you have done, Father. Oh, what you have done. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. 
those who have been placed in Christ as a gracious gift of a loving Father who sent His Son to be our High Priest. Father, if there be anybody within the sound of my voice that doesn't know the Son as their eternal High Priest, would you speak life, Holy Spirit? May they be born again to a living hope and express their faith in the finished work of Christ and repent of their sins and cling to Jesus until they see Him face to face. May we all do so and may you get the glory for it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand and receive a benediction. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now to Him who is able to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.